the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I am Seth Liebson. This is your show and your hour. The number is 602-508-0960. If you'd like to weigh in on the conversation, doing a lot, but it all stemmed from the issue in my monologue I was uh, drawing out where uh, the um, United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, spoke to Al Sharpton's organization, the National Action Network, yesterday. And um, while she was speaking, uh, she said that America came with the original sin of slavery and weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. And I was remarking that um, this is a new turn where the spokesman uh, on behalf of the uh, morality, strength, and importance of the United States before the world stage, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, is broadcasting to the world that we are a country that weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. This is a very new thing, and it's um, either a surrender or a um, – it's either a surrender or a um, ideological revolution taking place at a much faster rate than even I could have predicted. What used to be said, what used to be said merely in the classrooms from the most lunatic of teachers and professors, that America has white supremacy weaved into it, is now being taken up by the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Throughout our history, there was really only one side that believed that about our founding, and that was the Confederate States of America, the losing side in the Civil War. And it is a new thing for me to also see the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations taking up the position of the lost cause of the Confederacy that was defeated in our Civil War. It's a really new day and a really new era. Speaking of all of that, including, most importantly, always education, Tim is in Peoria. Hello, Tim. Seth, how are you? Sir? I'm fine, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I've always believed that the one thing missing over the last I don't know, 25 years, is the diversity of voices when it comes to race in America. I remember back in 1991, I had the opportunity to meet the great John Lewis. And John Lewis in 1991 did not sound like the John Lewis of late. He was more inspired by hope. I remember that, he John Lewis. More, I remember those days. You're right. I remember was, that. Yeah, he was. 
when he sat there at Savannah State College before it became a university and all historical black college and myself and other students were sitting there and our faces looked a lot different than the majority of the students on that campus, he commented on the beginning of diversity on that campus as well as other HBCUs. Mm -hmm. Moving forward in education, I always think that education is where it starts. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, with where we are at today, I think it is a minority, a minority of the country that actually believes that white supremacy is entwined uh, throughout our founding documents. I just believe that it's the minority out there that is controlling the narrative, unfortunately. But it goes back to my diversity of the voices. Black leadership in black communities across the United States, they are unwilling to allow the diversity of voices, whether they be Latino, whether they be other black voices, or, you know, myself, white voices. I had a conversation with Jared Maupin last year during the high, the height of the summer of uh, unrest, if you will. And I thought it was a great conversation. I've known Jared for years, and I, I, I think it was one of the best conversations I've ever had with another black man in America, and that's saying a lot considering my background. And I asked, you know, why don't we talk about this stuff in the community? And he said, they don't, know, they don't allow it to happen because the minority is controlling the narrative. I think that if you are able to get the diversity of voices out there to speak truth, not, not hyperbole and not, um, you know, going on a stretch like having a new Articles of Confederation being crafted, but starting from the ground up, because right now, as far as race relations, the reason why they are where they are at is because the other side has fought very hard at the street level and has got the ill-informed and uneducated uh, to believe a narrative that is just poisonous uh, just to the community. It all starts in, in K-12 education. When you tell a child that they can't, they won't and don't, because the soft bigotry of low expectations rules the day. They will grow up and feel that way. But at the, to- at the same time, I know they feel that way. I look at the faces that sit on campuses every spring at historical black colleges and universities, as well as other college and colleges and universities in the United States, the black faces of America. And I see hope and I see strength and I see that they don't believe in what the minority is pitching today. I hope you're right, Tim. I I hope you're right. And what I don't know is the answer to the following question. Are we still held together as a country with a lot of political division? Are we still held together by dint of there being that, for lack of a better term, silent majority that you speak of, Tim? Or is that silent majority really not a majority anymore when you look at the kinds of things we um, are willing to put up with, Um, the kinds of things being like the new kinds of BLM curricula in our schools, Um, the uh, kinds of things where we are stripping uh, police departments of funds and personnel, where we are, in fact, defunding the police. Um, these are these are real world policy effects that, if they are in the minority viewpoint, wouldn't be taking place, and we wouldn't be putting up with them. That's what I worry about, Tim. Is that too cynical? I hope not. No, I, I agree with you. I think that the silent majority is just what you said it is. 
people are unwilling to speak up. And the Civil Rights Act of, you know, in the 1960s under the leadership of Martin Luther King, it doesn't happen without people sitting by idly and not speaking up. It took, you know, from the ground up. That's what, that's what Martin Luther King did. You know, when I look at what's happening today as far as the dialogue in uh, race relations, I just see such a drop-off with, with regards to people going out there and having conversations because right. they're afraid of what's going to be said. Right. But if you look at current conditions, and I would, I would challenge every, every black American to look within their community and just answer my one question. Why is it that the black leadership in the black communities is not pushing for young black men and women to comply with respect to uh, policing? I'm not saying that you don't, you don't have to like it, but you just have to comply because right now there are a lot of black leaders in America that are getting rich and don't want young black Americans to comply because the money continues to roll in off the lives and poor choices of some people in their community. And that's sad because I see millions and millions of dollars going to a very few in a circle of black leaders where they should be going out there and saying, this is the law. Let us renew our relationship. And at the end of the day, it starts with K-12 education. We have to teach our kids, whether they are white, brown, Asian, black, whatever, that education is key. And as soon as we start promoting empowerment over the concept of being a victim, then we'll start seeing people lift themselves up out of the trenches that have been uh, dug in by the minority voice who wants to continue to keep black America down and only use them every four years for votes and supporting, uh, I guess, a liberal agenda that does not favor them in the end. Well, okay. if, it's not, uh, if it's not evident to uh, the rest of you, I'll just fracture the inference that uh, I may have just had the privilege of listening to one of the most articulate men in our state. Tim, that was very well stated, beautifully and poetically. I'll say something about it when we come back. You're welcome to stay on as well if you have a further comment or rebuttal to me. Others are welcome to join the conversation as well. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Tim, are you still on the line? I certainly am, sir. Great, great. Thank you. I'm glad you are. I wanted to run this by your point and see if uh, you agree or disagree or if I'm capturing you right. And it is when you look at the various communities in this country and you are highlighting uh, minority communities um, – you find that most of them or the majority of them, Tim, in your experience, are not um, are not embracing of the woke uh, mentality or the kind of nonsensical things you hear from the new woke spokesman. Is, is that what you're basically telling me? I am. I don't believe that there's really a, a parent out there that truly believes that their child can't, won't, and don't, and cannot perform up to the same standards as the white student. If you look at ethnomathematics, Ebonics in L.A., if you look at the race-based grading system that Miami-Dade uh, once had, 
where the lowest expectation was in the black community. They only needed to get a 66%, and white Americans needed to get a 78%. Uh, Latinos, I still I believe, were still below the 70th, uh, 70 percentile as far as threshold. I don't believe a parent wants that. Again, if you, if you empower students, you know, they'll respond to it because every student wants to achieve. I think that children in the, in the black community specifically, in many of the schools, because as you know, many of the schools in the inner city in the black community are failing schools. Mike Brown, who was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri, he went to the worst high school in the state. The state actually had that school taken over. How do you put your child in that, in that school and expect your child who spends most of their weekdays in, a, in that school, how do you expect them to come out a better person? You can't. So again, I just think that the woke uh, community, if you will, is the minority. And at the end of the day, it is a minority of the trouble. It is a minority of people out there causing trouble. And unfortunately, in our own community, as we saw yesterday, uh, you know, I think white Americans also need to get off the train, if you will, and always stop criticizing some of the responses that black America has. Uh, we had a white gentleman that was pushing uh, black, uh, black people off his street. What's the, who's that man to say who can, and, who can and can't walk through his neighborhood? I think that it was a, a horrendous act. I thought that it was ignorant of him. And unfortunately, on social media today, I see people defending him. Was, it, was this a local, Tim? I didn't, I, I'm unaware of the story. Is this a local story? No, it's, uh, I think it was over somewhere in the east where it was, uh, I believe, a Marine or a soldier was pushing. Well, well let's uh, just stipulate uh, right here. Let, I mean, yeah. let's just stipulate and make this easy. If the facts are as you say they are, uh, this man needs not to be praised but uh, condemned, period. Yeah, I, it just, you have to. Period. Have to, you yeah, can't, there, there's you can't no. Just, yeah, right. The, yeah, the, we have to stop picking sides, in my opinion, on this debate because at the end of the day, I think that there's common ground, but we have to be able to articulate ourselves uh, intelligently. And I don't think the white community really understands what's happening in the black community with respect to the K-12 uh, school system. You look at Baltimore, you look at all of the other, uh, you know, hot, predominantly black neighborhoods or black cities in America, their school systems are failing. Why is that? No wonder you have kids wanting to get bust in and wanting variances to other schools. Just here in the Phoenix area, we have a problem with variances where kids don't want to go to school because it's a failing school. But somewhere else up in the north, they have schools that do well. Um, and I think that if we can start empowering our students in grades that, I don't know, uh, three through six to make them understand that they can, they will and they do, they'll have a better outlook on life. But again, I look back on Malcolm X when he was in eighth grade. He told his teacher he wanted to be an attorney. And, his, and that teacher's response was, uh, in not so many words, Negroes do not become attorneys. And I think that guided Malcolm X's uh, young life when he was in the 20s to be somewhat of, um, you know, less desirable with respect to uh, societal norms. And it was only until he uh, made that pilgrimage where he started to see the way of the light and started to agree with Martin Luther King uh, more than he disagreed. Well, Tim, what's 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 hopeful to me is 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 your observation. I I hope you're right. I was taken in by a similar set of thoughts written up by Glenn Harlan Reynolds, who um, 
who writes uh, for the New York Post. He's a professor of law at the University of Tennessee. And he was talking about how the woke policies uh, that we are seeing, whether it's in K through 12 or whether it's uh, in having to do with policing or anything else, libraries, you name it. Glenn Reynolds writes, it's happening not because anybody voted for these things, but because a small and determined and vicious minority is bullying people to go along, relying on cowardice and groupthink to achieve ends that could never happen via majority vote. How do you think Dr. Seuss would have done in a referendum, he asks. I love that. How do you think Dr. Seuss would have done? Last point, he writes... Uh, in his book, Skin in the Game, uh, Nicholas Nassim Talem writes about the surprising ability of small but intransigent minorities, 3%, 4%, that can change the direction of an entire society. He writes, quote, the most intolerant wins. Yes, an intolerant minority can control and destroy democracy. It will eventually destroy our world. So we need to be more than intolerant with some intolerant minorities. He's singing what you're singing, isn't he, Tim? I think so. And, you know, on my last point, when I look at what's happening in communities today and as far as political parties, Joe Biden once said they want to put you back in chains. The Democrat Party has been has been successful, especially in the black community, in uh, applying chains of bondage, not to the feet as it was back in the days of slavery when they controlled that uh, dynamic. But now it's the chains of intellect. And they have these uh, people, some people in the black community from a very young age, and they're being told that they're not uh, empowered, that they're born a suspect, that they're born a victim. And again, the can't, won't, and don't, and the soft bigotry of low expectations is destroying our black communities across America. And we're seeing it over and over again with low college enrollment low, uh, you know, the, the fight for low wages. Why are we saying that black America can only fight right. for low wages? Right. Again, empowerment over victimization. So long as that narrative, until that narrative becomes uh, the majority as far as being at the tip of the sword on race talk, we're never going to get there. And I just wish that somebody would uh, afford people like myself the opportunity to sit down and have these conversations and uh, start looking at the children in the black community and to empower them to be what the likes of Condoleezza Rice and Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas and so many more famous black Americans that without them, many of the the innovations that we've seen in the United States throughout history uh, would not come to be without the brilliant minds of black Americans. Well, Tim, I'll tell you what, uh, to the degree you can stay close to this show, please do so. And to the degree that we can open up again soon, uh, uh, through uh, our building and other corporate policies to bring in outside uh, guests, I would like to, once that thing ends, get you in studio and do this for an hour with you. Um, So stay close, stay in touch, but uh, yours is the voice we need uh, more of. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. I was privileged to be on the Bill Bennett podcast uh, this week. Uh, we spent uh, about uh, about an hour 
talking about uh, the kinds of things we talk about here, everything from politics, culture, China, a lot on China, a lot on race, a lot on Georgia, a lot on Ron DeSantis. If you want to hear it, you can go to thebillbennettshow.com. That's thebillbennettshow.com. Been getting a lot of nice feedback around it. You like it, Bill? Did you hear it yet? You liked it? What'd you, what, what did you like the best? I like DeSantis talk. Yeah. We had a good talk about Ron DeSantis and Georgia. The other thing I want to do is there's this thing you handed me yesterday, which is so tantalizing. It's a, it's a, it's a pencil-drawn picture of Robert Shaw playing Quentin Jaws with all these quotes like, as if in a, in a word cloud around him. I got to ask you why you gave this to me and what it means. And I almost – it's so tantalizing I want to ask you now, but maybe we save it for Fun Friday tomorrow. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's interesting and weird at the same time, and I have got to get to it. I've just got to. The Media Research Center, one of the topics Bill Bennett and I talked about was uh, the united conservative defense of the state of Georgia and offense taken at those boycotting Georgia. And the Media Research Center did just a fantastic video explaining this all. Go ahead, maestro. Georgia's new voting law is getting a lot of heat from the press. Georgia's Republican governor has just signed a sweeping new law aimed at making it harder for people in his state to vote. Is this all voter suppression in action? Clearly, the, the broadest attempt to make it more difficult for Americans to vote since the Jim Crow era before the Voting Rights Act. First of all, let's get this out of the way. The bill has nothing to do with Jim Crow. Anyone making that claim is trying to sell you a political narrative. Even the Washington Post admits Georgia's voting law is less strict than what's on the books in some deep blue states. Delaware, Washington, Connecticut all have stricter voting laws, to name a few. Democrats call it voter suppression, saying that those ID requirements, new limits on Dropbox usage, and banning anyone except a poll worker from offering water to voters in line all restrict access to the ballot. The law limits ballot drop boxes, adds new requirements for mail-in voting, and makes it a crime for anyone other than a poll worker to offer food and water to voters waiting in line. Okay, so these are the big three arguments that you'll hear the most from the media. First, the voting drop boxes. They claim it limits drop boxes, but this one's objectively not true. Before the law was passed, there was no law in Georgia requiring drop boxes. So the law doesn't limit them, it establishes them. Next, ID requirements. Georgia already required ID for in-person voting. All this law does is eliminate signature matching for absentee ballots, and instead, they're now verifying absentee ballots by requiring an ID number. So this one is just the years old, it's racist to expect people to own an ID nonsense. Which, by the way, a Gallup poll found that voter ID laws are incredibly popular, regardless of race. A 2016 poll found 80% of respondents in favor, only 19% opposed. Here's the breakdown by race and party affiliation. All above 50%. Nobody's buying the requiring ID is racist line anymore. Everyone's heard it before, it's insulting. Last of the big three points. No more handing out water to people standing in line to vote. Sounds extreme until you consider what happened in Georgia's 6th district, when Democrat activists started handing out bottles of water to people in line while urging them to vote Democrat. This is why we can't have nice things. Every state has laws against campaigning at the polls. This is just closing a loophole. 
Fortunately, though, no one's going to die of dehydration. People can still set up food trucks, lemonade stands, pretty much whatever. It just has to be 150 feet away from a polling station. People waiting in line are able to go purchase something, save their spot, go back, and there's no penalty. Rolling back voter rights, the Republican push in more than 40 states to limit voting access. Georgia's more restrictive voting law. Georgia's Jim Crow voter suppression law. A couple of things wrong with this. It's not even accurate to say that the bill makes it harder to vote. It's absurd to say that it was designed to make it harder to vote. Let's touch on the idea that it restricts early voting. That's just not true. Don't just take that from me. Here's the Washington Post. Quote, the new bill requires at least two Saturdays of early voting for each primary and general election. Previous Georgia law required only one. The left also makes a big deal out of long voting lines as voter suppression. Well, the Georgia law does something about that, too. If lines are longer than one hour, officials are required to try to alleviate them. They can set up extra temporary polling locations, for example, and the bill gives them the resources to do this. This mostly applies to highly populated urban areas. Does any of this sound like voter suppression yet? So, big picture here. Obviously, the Jim Crow rhetoric is a cynical smear. It's hard to imagine anyone using that language actually believes it themselves. But the lie actually goes further than that. It's not just that the bill isn't draconian, it isn't even restrictive by modern standards. When the media call this law voter suppression, they're taking advantage of the fact that 99% of us will never read the bill itself. And they're using that to distort public perception. Don't fall for political talking points masquerading as news. That's a great job by the Media Research Center. Just a great job. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. One of the interesting lines of conversation you you hear more and more of in um, conservative circles, conservative talk, is distrust of private corporations, large private corporations. And it's been going on for a couple few years now, and it's now hitting um, hitting hitting a level that if someone were raised in the 1950s learning about Republicans, they wouldn't understand. <laughs> they wouldn't understand today's Republican Party rhetoric about concern concerns over large corporations, be they social media corporations or. Coca-Cola or United or Delta. Um, But that is another serious set of institutions, corporate America, that we now need to add to the list of other institutions the left has taken over. We can talk about the education system, the entertainment uh, uh, world, uh, Hollywood, we can talk about um, we can talk about uh, media and journalism. Uh, we can talk about the university system. We can talk about professional athletics, but um, we need to talk about the American corporation too. We need to add the American corporation into that list of things the left has taken over. 
Over at Issues and Insights, they write, The story of more than 100 CEOs meeting to attack the voting laws the left is screeching over is discouraging. The healthy separation between civil society and politics has grown dangerously thin, and these leaders are threatening to punch right through the tattered fabric. Sunday afternoon, the Wall Street Journal reported that senior executives had gathered on Zoom over the weekend to plot what several said big business should do next about new voting laws underway in Texas and other states. A pair of Kenneths, Chenault, former American Express CEO, and Frazier, CEO of Merck, urged the leaders to collectively call for greater voting access, according to several people who attended. These men cautioned businesses against dropping the issue and asked CEOs to sign a statement opposing what they view as discriminatory legislation on voting. This being America, they have every right to gather, to express their opinions, to sign whatever statement they wish to support, and we have every right to point out how they're falling, perhaps even willfully, for a gross mischaracterization of the new Georgia voting law and other similar legislation that is likely to follow. Contrary to popular opinion, Georgia's law does not suppress voting. In reality, it expands voting opportunities. As we just heard, even the Washington Post, a Democratic Party newsletter for all intents and purposes, gave President Joe Biden four Pinocchios for his lies about the law, which were central to the widespread fabrications about it. The left says that the law must be vilified, though. The real reason behind the hostility is legislators' efforts to establish election integrity by requiring voters to present valid identification at the polls, which is not a new policy in the state. Why anyone would oppose the practice of compelling voters to provide they to prove they are who they say they are is a mystery, unless that is the opponents want to steal elections, which is easier when identification isn't required. Here we pause to remind that the Democrats for the excuse me that the Democrats for the People Act H.R. one, the party's benchmark federal bill so far this year essentially invalidates any state ID requirements. CEOs are aligning themselves with the radical agenda of the left, not necessarily because they believe in its objectives, though they might, but because, as Charles Gasparino of Fox Business tweeted, they are virtue signaling to keep the progressive mob from attacking them on pay and a lot more. It is, as Gasparino says, a transparent head fake, and it's one that won't work. The left never has enough. Its rapacious appetite for demanding further compliance with its agenda, for silencing political opponents, for subjugating those who dissent from its orthodoxy, will not be sated. The CEOs might be eaten last by the mob thanks to their gesture, but eaten they will surely be unless the good people of this country resist the woke horde and its chief sponsors, the Democratic Party and the legacy media, both of which are pushing us hard down a path that ends at the edge of a high cliff. And that's very, very, very well said and written and <clears throat> and begs the question and the discussion, uh, the debate of the discussion I was having with Tim, 
as to whether the um, the uh, warp and woof of these corporations stands ideologically with the woke community and the woke sentiment of the day, a social justice warrior sentiment of the day, or whether it's, you know, maybe just, you know, 100 CEOs at the very top. Uh, knowing the corporations as I do, knowing corporate America as I do, which is not as well as some, but as, as, as someone who knows it a bit, I would have to venture and guess that um, the sentiment of the woke uh, rages widely throughout these corporations, and it's not just the elite at the top. Just as these sentiments range widely throughout our education system, and not just in the poor ones. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Thank you uh, for spending some of your afternoon with us. Uh, the effort by Democrats like um, Senator Markey and Representative Chairman uh, of the Judiciary Committee and Representative Jerry Nadler to expand the membership of the Supreme Court today um, was um, – is the other side of the coin of silencing us. Because their justification for it is, as one of the speakers at today's uh, rally said, Representative Jones, our democracy is hanging by a thread and the far-right majority on the U.S. Supreme Court is cutting it. They see the conservative membership of the court also as beyond the pale, not part of the wingspan of tolerable politics, not within the guardrails, to use Joe Biden's phrase, of democracy, beyond the pale doesn't belong on this court, so we will expand it. That is their justification. They merely don't want conservatism to exist. That is the other side of the coin of the cancel culture. And thus, when we think about these things, I think it's important to think about what Thomas Jefferson wrote, which was, truth is great and will prevail if left to herself that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. Now think about why they want to shut us up. Now think about why they want to cancel us. By the way, James O'Keefe was taken off social media today and permanently banned. They want us silenced because they are afraid of the truth. I'm Seth Leibson. Until tomorrow, God bless you and class dismissed.